Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Endurance Cartel Podcast. I am your performance and lifestyle coach, Javier Pineda. If you enjoy the content, make sure to tell your friends and head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And please, leave us a review. Want to know when the next episode is coming out? If so, head over to my website at endurancecartel.com. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now, let's get down to business. This episode, Mani Huerta, a two-time Olympian in triathlon. He went on to the London 2012 and Rio 2016 Olympics, qualified against all odds and surely a story to be heard directly from him. After retiring from professional triathlon racing, Manny decided to start coaching athletes with the same grit, determination, and focus that got him to the Olympics twice. In this episode, Manny and I sit down and talk strategies, training tips, and Olympics. Hope you enjoy this episode. Here we go. Man, the champion. My friend, thank you for being on the Endurance Cartel podcast. You were born in Havana, Cuba. I'm curious how you trained in Cuba compared to how you trained here in the U.S. Of course, you were a different age, but as a kid in training in Cuba, what's that experience like, especially in doing in triathlons or any sport rather? Yes, I was born in Cuba. I grew up as a swimmer first. I started swimming when I was like 10 years old. I was swimming like sometimes three times per day. I made it to like the National Training Center for Swimming in Cuba. And that's where they have their whole development from junior and then like senior, meaning elite level swimmers. So I was in that school and in that program, but I didn't really like it. I didn't really like swimming, looking at the black line every day, three times per day. While I was swimming, I tried different sports. My sister was a no-no in sports. So I was the only one that had that mentality. I'm glad that I tried different sports so that I can find out where I fit in. After swimming, I was doing more training, like running, cycling. There was a local coach in Havana found out that I was a swimmer and invited me to a local kids triathlon. My first race, I didn't even have a road bike. I just had one of those Chinese cruise bikes. I won my age group and I'm like, man, I can be really good at this. And that's where that switch in my head of wanting to be the good triathlete turn on. What year did you move to the United States? This was back in 1997. And that's the same year I moved to the United States. Three years later in 2000, that's when triathlon became a sport at the Sydney Olympic. I remember I was here in Miami watching the Olympics. And I'm like, I want to be a triathlete that goes to the Olympic game. Remarkable how the history that took to get that mindset of an Olympian. But what I admire about you is you saw that and you envisioned that. You put that in your head and you strived for that. What kind of things went on in your head? What was your road like on training, finding a coach, sponsors? Because you were going to be devoting yourself to this sport. In 2005, the USA triathlon team recruited me to move to Colorado Springs to the Olympic Training Center. I started training with the national team. It was like a dream. And I was surrounded by actual Olympians in triathlon and in all the sports. I saw how talented everyone else was. I realized how hard it was going to be. Because here in Miami, I was a big fish on the small pond. There, and I was like the small fish in the ocean. Did you have any setbacks or injuries? So I had the same setbacks as any athlete could have. Injuries, races going wrong, 
family problems. Triathlon is not like tennis or golf, where even if you finish last, you're still going to make a, a good living. And then to be at the level that is required for you to get to the Olympic Games, you have to go all in. You have to go all in there. It's not guaranteed that even if you do everything right and you go all in, that you're going to make the team. When I made the first Olympic team, there were only two Americans on that team for triathlon. So think about how many U.S. athletes are training and competing in triathlon in the U.S. and for only two of them to make the Olympic every four years. So it's, it's extremely hard. It requires a lot of dedication and a lot of motivation too, because there are some setbacks that if you're not really motivated, if you're not stubborn about what you really want, it's, it's not going to happen. Let me ask you, what was your motivation? Did you think of somebody back home that I'm going to do it for my family? Or did you have a, a certain quote in your head, like a mantra that no matter what, this is my route? Because it's, I can see how easily defeated it can be, especially in triathlons. Like you said, it's not a sport that you can make a living like in tennis. It's a do or die thing. And you were that 0.001% that actually made it. So I'm curious, at that high level, there has to be something in your brain telling you that you can do this. How to be honest, I had a great support from my family, but I really didn't do it for them. I told some of the athletes that I coach. That when they're out there and they're hurting and negative thoughts starts coming into your head, you have to be in this doing it for you, not for your family. Because your family is going to love you regardless. You're not going to change as a person in their eyes if you're an Olympian, if you're an amateur, if you're whatever. You're just going to be the same person. And it hurts so much that if you do it for yourself, then you're not thinking about letting someone down, but you're thinking about how much you want it. If, if at some point you crack, then you're letting yourself down and you might push a little bit more because that's how much you want it. You wanted to do it for yourself. You don't want to do it for someone else. I totally agree with you. Maybe it might sound selfish, but that's, I think that's the way I see it. And I think many athletes see it that way. I remember being a kid, running around here late afternoon, nights, just training. I'm repeating in my head, if I was at some random race, Olympic trials or world championships, and then I'll be thinking how the announcer will be calling my name and saying, I'm spending words are winning and he qualified for the Olympics. That's what I was thinking when I was training and gave me that instant motivation, like constant motivation that I needed to make it happen. I noticed that you're 5'7". You're almost the same height as me, but you're so much more athletic for the sport of triathlon and compete against guys that are 6'1", 6'2", in the Olympics. That alone is a huge advantage, especially in the swim. What was it like next to them before the, the swim start? Because they must also pedal as strong just because of their height. I'm still 5'7". I haven't grown. I also weighed like about 125 pounds to 127. Wow, that was your racing weight. That was my race weight. I was one of the lightest guys in the circuit and obviously one of the shortest one. There's a couple of guys that they're all 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, all of them are super good runners. Now, this is the thing. You're racing guys that are taller than you. And the good thing about triathlon is that there's so many variables and race in so many different scenarios. You have to find a race that suits your strength. 
So for me, because of my height, my weight, being born in Cuba, the races that suited me were hilly races, ocean swims, and really hot. That's where I excel. Now, that doesn't mean I always got to race on those races because when they put the Olympics in London, which is the complete opposite of what I want, it's flat, it's cold, it's in LA. That's not what I was good at, but there was nothing that I could do about it. You just go in there, you do the best, and then you see athletes from Great Britain, Russia, Spain, the Europeans, how they do better than other guys from that scenario. How many triathletes line up at the starting line? In our races, you have 65 to 75 athletes. You want to be on that front pack. If you're not on that pack, your race is pretty much over. So what they do is that the first buoy is about 200, 300 meters away. So you got the best 65, 75 athletes in the world getting to the first buoy in 200 meters. The difference between the best swimmer and the worst swimmer is probably about five, six, seven seconds. And then you put 75 guys going through that in that amount of time. Mm. So it's really aggressive. Did you ever get punched or pick a fight? And never tried to fight. One, because at 5'7", 125, the odds were against me if I tried to fight. But then someone that is 6'1", or 5'10", or 5'11", and outweighs me by 20, 30 pounds, he wouldn't think about it too much if he needed to move me around. It it wasn't going to be too hard for him on a decision. So that was a challenge. Every time I I line up, I knew that the first boy was going to be tough. The first couple of races, maybe they're not going to be so aggressive. No, man. If you go to a boxing match and you're like, oh, maybe I don't get punched in the face today. No, you're in a boxing. You're going to get punched everywhere. So once I accepted that's what's going to happen, when it's happening, just find the best way to get out of that situation and to move forward. I agree. And a lot of people don't understand. It is a contact sport. Once you go in that water, it becomes a contact sport because I remember being punched, kicked and chipped my tooth. Vicious. People that are new to the sport or just want to know more or understand more about the sport in terms of the swimming portion, because that's what freaks more people out in triathlons. I can only imagine how much nerves must have been at, in that starting point and how much kicking and elbowing and shoving must have been. But Yeah, and you know, Javi, about that, I don't say this 100% of the time. For example, I've been to races where I'm swimming and because... We're so close together. I have 20 guys in front of me, five guys to my right, five guys to my left, and then 40 other guys that if I slow down a little bit, they're going to swim me over. I'm just hanging there. I'm breathing to my right. Whoever is on to my left is beating the crap out of me. I can't see anything because there's just bubbles from the peaking. If you swim in a lake, the water is dark. I'm like, what is this guy doing? I keep getting hit on my left. And I'm breathing to my right and I keep getting down on my left. I can barely move my arm trying to push me. I push him every once in a while. I I breathe to my left to see who it is. And it's just some random guy. It's you, for example. So after the race, I go up to you like I've done it. And I'm like, Javi, dude, what's your problem? And he's no, what are you talking about? Javi, you punched me the whole freaking race, the whole freaking swim. You were on top of me, punching me. And then you go, no, dude, you were the one hitting me. 
you punch my goggles off and I didn't even know that. And then realize that many of the things that are happening on the swim is happening to everyone. Many of those are not intentional. It's just part of the sport. It's just you're caught up in being nervous, the anxiety of swimming not by yourself in the pool, swimming with, with other athletes. Everyone wants to go fast and first. You can't really see and sight because when you look down the ocean or the lake or the river, everything looks the same. First up, I have a several questions. I've always wondered, what did your coach tell you before that race? That's number one. And number two is, what was going through your head, if you can remember, in that race that you qualified for the 2012 Olympics? Because you qualified ninth place, right? In 2012, the qualification for the Olympics for the U.S. team was going to be at the San Diego Triathlon World Series. So at that moment, we had two spots and the automatic way to qualify was to finish as the top American, regardless of whatever position, will get an automatic spot. And if two male athletes wanted to get an automatic spot, they needed to finish within the top nine. Now, because this is a World Series, you had many top athletes from around the world. So if only one athlete would have finished in the top nine, that athlete would have qualified because he was the top American. But then the second spot would have been going to a committee for a discretionary qualification, meaning USA Triathlon would have picked the second athlete. Now, going into that race, I was ranked third or fourth in the U.S. So my chances of being chosen in that discretionary were very low because, of course, I got three guys. There's only two spots. So I knew that for me, it, there was no other discretionary anything. Like if I wanted to go to the Olympics, I either needed to be a top American or be second and finish in the top nine. You tried qualifying for the Olympics in 2008, correct? Getting to that race, that was my second Olympic cycle, meaning that I did a whole four years of training to the Beijing Olympics and I didn't qualify. I got eliminated in the Olympic trials and this was my second time through. So that was a good thing and a bad thing. A good thing is that I had the experience of trying to qualify for Beijing. The bad thing is that if you get knocked down two times, you have to be very strong to come back at it and to try one more time. At that moment in my life, personally, it wasn't the best time of my life because my dad had passed away. My mom had cancer. My grandma had died of cancer a few years ago. And I would think a huge credit card debt. That could have been the last race of my career. Wow. I knew that there was a chance that that was going to be the last race of my career because if I didn't make the Olympic team, I just didn't have the resources anymore to, to try for four more years. That's a lot of weight on your shoulders, money. But somehow that night, I had a good sleep. I didn't think about it too much. I knew I was fit. I knew that I had been eliminated before. Like I said, the people around me didn't think any less of me. So I was a little bit at peace. And then I knew that I was going to go so hard the following day that I was going to go all in regardless. And sometimes you're racing, Javi, and you're like four or five minutes back when you're playing basketball and it's the fourth quarter and you're down by 30 points. And you're like, why are these guys even trying? And they're shooting threes. And it's the same thing with triathlon sometimes. You're so far back. It's like, why am I going to hurt myself for so long if I'm so far back? 
15, 20 seconds are not going to make a difference. But the night before, I told myself, even if I'm really far back, I am going to turn myself inside out. Because when I go to sleep at night, I want to be at peace with myself that I did the best possible that I could have done. And that it just didn't happen. Having no regrets. So that wouldn't be what if I would have pushed a little bit harder on the swim or what if I was feeling like getting dropped on the bike. All the what if I want to eliminate them. So Javi, I went into that race like if it was the last race of my career. I had a lot of weight on my shoulders for things that were going on that I didn't have control family-wise. I don't believe in miracles, in high-performance sports. Sometimes you need some luck, but you need to have it. A miracle in high-performance sports, I don't believe in that. If you have a fit, you have a chance. If you don't have a fit, there's no miracle. It's not going to save you. Man, I went all in. I remember looking at, at my coach. His name is Roberto Solano. He's from Costa Rica. And at that moment, I was training in Costa Rica. Before the race, we didn't talk much. He just told me, man, this is it. He knew what it meant. He knew what I was going through. He knew that was going to be the last race of my career if I wouldn't have made it happen. So the race started. I came out of the water on the third pack. I was a little bit far back. I stayed focused and positive. I had some really good riders on my pack. I had Chris McCormack, Team Don. I had a bunch of other Europeans that worked really hard and I didn't do anything. I just sat in there and would think if we catch up, I have a chance. If we don't catch up, then I have no chance. I play my cards. Somehow with two laps to go, the entire race came together. All three packs were together on the bike. No one got away and everyone started the run together. So if there were 65 at the beginning of the race, there's probably a 50-man pack of the bike. I made sure that when I got off the bike, I was towards the front. That was something very important because when you have a 50-man pack going into transition, the difference between the first guy that starts to run and number 50, it could be 15 seconds. And you're like, whoa, well, 15 seconds is not too much. If that first man opens the first mile at 445, 440, then you have to run a 425 mile to catch up. So 15 seconds is a lot. Mm -hmm. If you start to run 10 seconds, then you need to run 430 first mile. Right. If you start five seconds, then you have to run 440 right. instead of. So that's the way it works. And everybody in the pack knows this. This is no secret. This is not something that I only knew. To get to transition in the front is a battle. And I got to transition in the front. I started the run in a good position. I went out running with Olympic World Championship medalists like Bevan Doherty, Chris Gemo, Brad Califer, and I was there. And I was none of that. My best position at a World Series before I was 13. I, I ran with those guys for dear life. I never thought in my head that if it doesn't work out, let's see how we do next month. There was nothing. We travel so much and we race so much that sometimes you're in these races and it's hard and you're like, oh, maybe I'll have a better day next week or two weeks. For me, there was no two weeks. This is it. I push all the way and I end up finishing as the second American, finishing ninth, six seconds in front of 10th and getting the automatic spot for London. I was so motivated and so inspired. I almost got teary-eyed when I saw you celebrate. I felt that everybody that saw you, that competed with you in Kiwi Skate in South Beach, 
we all saw you grow up to be that athlete that we all saw celebrate. And you're telling me all this, that your dad, grandma passed away. Wow. It's very admirable what you did and how you did it. Just guts, man. Nothing but admiration. Once you qualified for that Olympic, did you have any high expectations, a chance for a medal or just enjoy this experience? No, when I qualify and the way I did it, qualifying at a World Series, finishing top 10, it's pretty hard. That's a really good result for myself. So I definitely did not want to go to the Olympics for a field trip to participate. I, I, I wanted to go and compete. When you're in the U.S. team and you have a dude named Michael Phelps that wins seven gold medals, it, it's really hard to compete against that. The mentality in the U.S. team is always to win medal. And sometimes that's good and bad because not everyone is going to win. For me, realistic, I was never a medal contender, but I was a better athlete than my result at those Olympics. I finished 51st. I got sick the day before with some type of food poisoning, but I went out there and I did the best I could that day and I didn't turn out the performance I wanted. But the path to get there for me was so hard that it, it meant a lot getting to the Olympics. But again, looking back, I should have enjoyed the experience a lot more because I got caught up after my event with my result that I didn't enjoy the last part of the Olympics. I was like, oh, what am I going to do now? I came here. I finished 51st. In my head, I could have maybe finished top 10, top 15. I don't want to be here. That type of thing. So that's why sometimes the medal mentality, if you're not even near of what you were planning or hoping to get, then it can turn again. You, yes, I wanted to have a better race than what I did. It didn't happen. I am very thankful to myself that I never gave up and to the people around me that never gave up on me. And it was a wonderful experience. And I feel very lucky to have found something that I love and that I was able to excel. I know many people that they love something and they can never excel at, or a lot of people that they never find their true love. They are very successful in other things, but they're always looking what their true love is and they don't get it. For me, my true love was this passion to go to the Olympics and I found it. I was able to accomplish it. I'm very thankful and I feel myself very fortunate to have that experience with me. And that's, I guess that's key. And how many people go to their jobs every day and they're miserable. And mm -hmm. yet you picked not only to be a professional athlete, but you were at the top percentage of everybody. Being in the Olympics, creme of the creme. It doesn't matter how you put it, the Olympics. And yet you qualified again in 2016 through Puerto Rico this time. Can you explain what happened? You don't need to go into details or what you didn't like about the USA committee. So qualifying for Puerto Rico on paper, if you have the talent, it's a little bit easier because you have more control of yourself. Because to go to the Olympics, you get 55 spots in triathlon. From those 55 spots, only a maximum or two or three per country can go. Mm -hmm. Meaning Great Britain will get three spots. France will get three spots. The U.S. might get two or three. Spain will get two or three. But then Puerto Rico doesn't have 
two or three really good athletes that could potentially be in the top 55 in the world. The U.S. did. We had eight or nine athletes in 2012 that were eligible to go to the Olympics. The thing in the U.S. is that it's a double qualification because you have to qualify yourself to be in that top ranking to be eligible to go and then go to an elimination race that they will select the team from. So you can be ranked number one in the world for four years, but if you go to the race and you have a bad race, then you're out of the Olympics. You'll see it in gymnastics, in swimming, in track and field, how some of the top-ranked athletes don't make it because they just have a bad day at Olympic trials. Now, when I moved there on paper, I, I actually, I moved there not because I wanted to make the team for Puerto Rico, but because for me, it was similar to Cuba, where I grew up, the language the weather, the people, everything. I, I really like Puerto Rico. And when I went there, I, I knew that Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, so they can compete for Puerto Rico or the U.S. But if you want to compete for Puerto Rico, for me, in my situation, I needed to live there for at least three years. So anyways, Puerto Rico has a lot less resources than the U.S. team has. Their budget for each port is much less. So new challenges showed up in my pursuit to my second Olympic game. I did have the experience of going to my first Olympics, but it didn't get easier, Javi. I thought I would. But it didn't get easier. It, it was as hard as the first one. On that second Olympic, I was struggling to make a living out of triathlon. I had to do different things to make a living. On top of racing and competing at the highest level in triathlon, because you're in a small market country, your value as an athlete for sponsors are not the same. Sponsorship there were really hard. And then everything else that comes with qualifying for the Olympics, with injuries, the sport of triathlon is evolving. Each time it's getting faster. There are kids that are training are younger. When I was 18, 19, I was riding and we did races in Kiwiskane on a steel bike. Now I coach kids that are 14 that have carbon fiber, power meters, garments, <laughs> everything. Racing wheels, training wheels. That's the way the sport has evolved. Every kid that wants to have a shot at becoming a top contender in the nation need to have all that. Mm. And I didn't have it because it didn't exist. Mm. So, and the same thing goes with training, like coaches now. Imagine I coach some junior athletes and I'm a two-time Olympian. Imagine mm. if I was 17 or 16, if I had a two-time Olympian coaching me, triathlon wasn't even at the Olympics. It's getting faster. The next Olympics are going to be faster. The, the ones after that are going to be faster. Everything is changing. It was hard. It was really hard to qualify for Puerto Rico. It wasn't easy. Everyone will think, or even myself, at some point thought that it will be. And it's just a lot of things can happen in four years. A lot of things. Your body changes in four years. The race format changes in four years. It's a very demanding sport on top of that, on everything. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. I've seen kids nowadays, I see their bikes and their bikes are, are incredible. The amount of equipment that exists nowadays in that's something I've always been baffled with, that a lot of athletes, and now you as a coach can tell me this, but I've seen that more and more triathletes are more concerned about buying the best 
bikes or the best gadgets or having the prettiest uniforms versus them really putting in the work in doing what needs to be done like you did. You started with a steel bike. I remember those bikes. I raced with those bikes. It was heavier than a car, but it was raw. Triathlon was raw then. It was all about guts and glory. Maybe I'm wrong. What's your perspective on that? As a coach now. How it also has to do with a little bit of the motivation. When we were racing, we didn't have all the choices. Mm -hmm. They were either black or blue. There were no aero helmets. It was all the, the same steel bikes. Mm -hmm. There was no diversity because triathlon was a really small market. Now it's, it's not only a sport, it's a trend and different people see motivation in different things. Uh, for some people, they don't care. They just want to go fast. They'll get whatever makes them faster. If the ceramic speed makes them faster, they will get it. If that other bike, they believe it makes them faster, they will get the bike. For others, it's just about how you look. If you look good doing it, then that's what keeps them motivated to be out there. And then there's others that they want to look good and be fast. That's what I, I think I am right now. Before I was just wanted to be fast. Now I want to look good and be fast because now one of those, I go out, I'm like, oh, my cycling kid, let's see if it matches my helmet and the shoes. Of course. And I remember, <laughs> yeah. And I remember when I was like 17, 18, I'm like, dude, I only have one pair of shoes. So that's it. It's going to match or no match. I don't care. And I had the cheapest one too. But yeah, I don't see there's a right or wrong. It's just different things will get different athletes motivated. And if that's their motivation to get them out there training, why not? Now, because triathlon has turned out to be a bigger market, there's a lot more company. When we started, there was only one company. Now there's sweatsuit company everywhere. Same thing with bikes. When we started, there was maybe like two or three brands. Now you go to a race, there's brands that you've heard. There's a little bit of everything for everyone in this sport. Thank you for clarifying that because you're more involved in the sport than I am. I am just an outsider now and I'm not racing anymore. I'm just observing. And you're absolutely right. It's whatever motivates them and whatever gets them out and wants them be a part of something because it has become a very big community. What is your philosophy of training? I had very good triathlon coaches as well as strength coaches. And I always would get their best and I would also look at their worst. So I would not do it. What's your philosophy? Did you get certain things from, from certain coaches and you still practice it today? So yes, I did. I, when I was a professional, I had different coaches. I had really good coaches. So I'm very lucky that I was able to be coached by some of the best coaches in the sport. And everybody has good things for some athletes and maybe not such a good things for other athletes. As an athlete, I try to choose not to, to pick and to stick with what I believe it helped me and not what I didn't believe. But maybe those things will work out for a different person. So yeah, I, I use those things that I learned when I was an athlete now that I'm a coach. Here in South Florida, I think we have to train different than many other athletes how they train in other parts of the U.S. because the heat and humidity here is a weapon. It gets so hot, it gets so humid in the summer months that it drains you every day. 
and there's nothing that you can do about it. You can start your bike ride at 5 a.m. You're still going to be hot and humid. So what I found out that works the best here is compromising a little bit of the volume, doing a little bit more of intensity and strength related workout. I get a lot of athletes that they like, I'm training for an Ironman and I need to do my 20 mile long. I'm like, dude, if you go out and do 20 mile long run in Miami in September, you're not going to get to the Ironman. You're going to go straight to Mercy Hospital <laughs> because it's impossible. No, I'll start at 4 a.m. Man, you can start at 2 a.m. It doesn't matter. So instead of thinking about let's do 20 mile long run, because that's what someone in San Diego says that you should do, let's do maybe like 15 miles with a little bit of quality in the middle. Mm -hmm. Or maybe let's, let's break it down. Let's do 12 miles, 30 miles in the morning when it's nice and at work, nice and when it's right. cooler. Quarter. And then like do, yeah, and then do another five, six miles in the afternoon, night on a treadmill. It's not your 20 mile San Diego run, but it's, it's not going to destroy you. If you do that, you're going to be so drained that the following week, you're not going to recover. You're not going to be able to do anything. You're going to be cramping. You're going to be tired. Same thing for the bike. It's tough here in South Florida to train for full Ironmans and for marathons. It's really hard. It takes you a little bit to understand it. And even for myself to believe that what I'm doing and that I'm coaching, it works. I see so many athletes from South Florida that they do better in their full Ironmans and in their half Ironmans. Maybe the second or third time around that they train less than the first time when they train a lot more. Just because they were so beat down the first time through trying to put everything on that they just, it, it was too hard. It was too hard. So I like to compensate a little bit with more intensity and strength related. They're running uphill, big gear, shorter intervals, plus their strength routine that they could do during the week too. So that's what I think when it comes to the longer stuff. On the shorter stuff, yes, we, we live in South Florida. It's hot, it's humid, we push, but you're only gonna suffer for two, two and a half hours on maybe an Olympic or three hours, and then an hour plus on a spring, suck it up and, and go hard. You know what? I love that philosophy of less is more. And I've always preached this to everybody I've trained. I say it, but I don't push it on them. If they want to continue with whatever they're doing, fine. Just let them go and learn. Let them learn that less is really more. It's brutal. Training here in South Florida, I remember purchasing an online program. I think it was my second Ironman in Brazil. I was done, man. I, I, I don't know how I finished that Ironman, but it was just brutal training. And this goes back to online training or cookie cutter trainings versus a coach like you are that knows what they're talking about, knows by experience and by literature and can also be a good mentor to their athletes. Yeah, definitely. I believe that if you want to do one of these long distance events, man, you need someone who knows where you train so that you can be trained at the best. Getting a coach from Boulder is nice, but make that coach from Boulder to come down here and do a 20-mile run and see how it feels before he makes you do the 20-mile run. It's a different world. Also, for the listeners, where can they find you for coaching services? 
Are you a, an exclusive coach? Right now, I'm one of two coaches. I work with Boris Fernandez. He's the other coach. Boris and I, we coach Team Altius. He's been doing this for a very long time. I work with him in the team aspect. I have private athletes that I coach one-on-one. I coach little kids in the afternoons for swimming, running, cycling. I also have some online coaching. You can find me on Instagram at TryMany. T-R-I-M-A-N-Y. Just send me a message there, reach out, and we can meet up. I cannot thank you enough, my man. I appreciate you. It was awesome watching you get to the Olympics twice, seeing you with all these great athletes, Phelps, Kobe, and now you're a coach, a big role model, and I applaud you, man. I appreciate you for being on the podcast. And hopefully you can come back in the future. We can talk some more, man, because I know you got some great stories that you're still have up your sleeve. So thank you so much, Manny. Yes, Javi, thank you for having me. Yes, for sure. I'll be more than happy to come back in the future. So, and Imena, uh, I'll see you around. Hope you enjoyed this series. I wish you nothing but the best of luck. Stay tuned for the next episode. Train smart. Train smart.